0: It says here that I'm the famous TV science guy Brian Cox, and I learned everything I know about charismatic science presenting from the Jodcast. I think that's what it says anyway.
1: (laughs) The Jodcast. Travelling through time at one second per second. With Megan Argo, John Field, Emily Jean, Jen Gupta, Scott Higginbottom, Libby Jones, Ian Morrison, and Mark Perver. The Jodcast. March 2011 edition. Hello, and welcome to the JOGcast. I'm Libby Jones, and joining me today is Jen, and we've also got two new people. We've got Melanie and Scott. Hi, guys. Hello. Hello. So, Melanie,
2: you're a postdoc here, and what are you working on? Oh, yeah, brand new postdoc, and I'm working on uh, radio galaxies, most particularly AGN. What's an AGN? Active galactic nuclei. You
3: have a 365 Days of Astronomy podcast.
2: Yes, it was on uh, February 10th. Talking about multi-wavelengths astronomy and observation. So, some people might recognise your voice. Really. Yes,
4: awesome.
1: And Scott, so you're a master's student here. And what are you working on?
4: I'm working on the boring side of trying to hunt for planets.
1: There's no boring.
3: I, gonna, side. I don't think there is a boring side to that, is
4: there? Well, I've got stuck analysing all the data and writing computer programmes, so I'm never going to find a planet myself at the moment.
3: Oh, you're right, it's boring. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's so, so boring.
1: (laughs) Just planet hunting. Yeah.
3: Don't don't I get an introduction, Libby? I thought you were just here to observe us and make sure we don't get into too much trouble. I'm mainly here to uh, keep an eye on Libby and these guys and make sure they don't screw anything up. And I've also got a cold, so I'm not going to say too much.
1: In the show this time, we talked to Alistair Edge and Alejo Martinez-Sansiri about the research they hope to do with ALMA and we find out what you can see in the night sky in March. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo.
5: In the news this month. Giant black hole in a dwarf galaxy, and seasonal changes in the northern dunes of Mars. Normal massive galaxies contain supermassive black holes in their central bulges. Observations have shown evidence for such objects in pretty much all massive Milky Way-like galaxies, as well as large elliptical galaxies. But not all galaxies are as large as the Milky Way, Many dwarf galaxies are known in the nearby universe, usually irregular in shape, and often forming stars much faster than galaxies like our own. Now, a team of astronomers, led by Amy Reines at the University of Virginia, have found evidence for a supermassive black hole in the centre of one of these dwarf irregular galaxies. The galaxy, known as Henais 210, is a small galaxy located some 30 million light-years away in the southern constellation of Pyxis. This galaxy is classified as a blue compact dwarf and is highly irregular in shape. Despite being similar in mass to the Large Magellanic Cloud, NIS-210 is forming stars some ten times faster. The team observed the galaxy with a number of telescopes operating in different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, as part of a survey of several galaxies. When they looked at data taken with the Very Large Array, a collection of radio telescopes situated in New Mexico in the USA, they found a small object at the centre of the galaxy, which was very bright at radio wavelengths. When they looked with the Hubble Space Telescope, they found that the object was not a large cluster of stars, several of which exist in other parts of Henais 210, but data from the archive of the Chandra X-ray Telescope showed that there was a source of X-rays at the same position. The amount of energy being emitted by this object in different parts of the spectrum is consistent with it being a supermassive black hole, with a mass estimated to be roughly two million times that of the Sun. This is an exciting but unexpected result, Since few dwarf galaxies are known to contain supermassive black holes and those that do are forming stars far more slowly than Hanais 210, and there is evidence that this black hole is growing by actively consuming material from the surrounding galaxy. This discovery has implications for our understanding of the growth of galaxies in the early universe, since the properties of Hanais 210, its active black hole, and simultaneous rapid star formation resemble those of low mass, high redshift galaxies seen in the distant universe, when the early stages of galaxy assembly and evolution were happening on a large scale. While the planet Mars is home to the largest volcano in the solar system, and the enormous Mariner Valley which cuts through a huge region of the planet's surface, the crust of the planet is today fairly inactive. Unlike the Earth, where plate tectonics cause the continents to move and ever so slowly collide with each other, Mars today has no such large-scale geological activity. But that doesn't mean the surface never changes with time, Several spacecraft have been imaging the surface of the red planet over many years, some at very high resolution, and the images sent back are showing an amazing amount of surface change on short timescales. In 2010, images released from the high-resolution imaging science experiment on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter showed evidence of avalanches on sand dunes, first imaged by Mariner 9 in the 1970s, located in the northern polar region. Most older images of the region suggested that it was mostly stable, with very little variation over time, but last year's images from the MRO show clear evidence of sediment transport, with one image even catching a dust cloud kicked up by an avalanche. Now, a team led by Candice Hansen at the Planetary Science Institute in Arizona in the USA have analysed the images and determined the cause of the avalanches. The team found that the numerous dunes in the northern polar region showed evidence of morphological changes over the course of a Martian year. Seasonal variations have been seen in images from previous Martian orbiters but this is the first time that they have been seen in such detail that the underlying processes can be studied. Some of the physical processes causing the changes are the same as those seen on sand dunes here on the Earth, but on Mars there is an additional process not found on the Earth. The Earth's polar caps are made of ice, but the atmosphere on Mars has a very high percentage of carbon dioxide, a gas which freezes in the cold temperatures of the Martian winter and settles on the surface. In the martian spring the carbon dioxide ice sublimates turning back into a gas and returning to the atmosphere this sublimation process can destabilize the dunes especially at the top where more sunlight is received and the side of the dune is steepest causing loosened sand to cascade down the side of the dunes creating gullies and aprons of material over the area studied a dune field 6.4 by 19.2 kilometers in size Roughly 20% of the dunes showed measurable changes over one Martian year, and another 20% showed slight changes. The widespread nature of these variations, and the pristine appearance of the dunes, suggests that sand transport on the surface is an active and ongoing process. Similar image comparisons of dunes at lower latitudes, further from the polar regions, show no changes in dune shape over the same period, adding to the evidence that the observed changes at high latitude require carbon dioxide ice. And finally, after a prolonged period of very little activity, the Sun produced the first X-class flare of Solar Cycle 24 during February. X-class flares are the most powerful solar events, producing X-rays and sending large amounts of charged particles out into space in what is known as a coronal mass ejection, or CME. Originating from a spot on the Sun's surface known as active region 1158, a region wider than Jupiter containing several sunspots, This particular eruption, the strongest in four years, peaked at 1.56 Universal Time on February 15th and resulted in a CME heading in our direction, producing some good displays of aurora at high latitudes a few days later. On February 18th, Sunspot Complex 1161 and 1162 also erupted, sending a further significant CME in the Earth's direction. Now that the Sun's activity is starting to increase again, it is worth taking a look, but make sure that if you do observe the Sun, you do it safely. Never point a telescope or binoculars at the sun. Thanks for that, Megan.
1: Just before Christmas, there was an ALMA meeting at George Bank Center for Astrophysics. So wait,
2: what's ALMA? It's the Atekema Large Millimeter Array. A millimeter slash some millimeter. Would that not make it ALM? Sat? sat. Yeah, but it's too hard to say, so you just slashed a submillimeter.
4: If you've still got no idea what we're talking about, there's an interview with Adam in the February Extra Jodcast that talks all about ALMA.
2: So
3: as Libby said, in December 2010, there were lots of people here at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics to talk about the science they wanted to do with ALMA. And during that meeting, Libby and Mark managed to get us lots of interviews. So here are the first of them.
1: Joining me on the Jugcast is Aliho Martinez-Sanzigre. He's from the Institute of Cosmology at the University of Portsmouth. And his, his research topic is high redshift quasars.
6: Hi, good morning.
1: Thank you for joining us on the Jugcast and being interviewed today.
6: Thanks for having me around.
1: So, what is a quasar, and how high redshift are we thinking about?
6: So, so a quasar is a supermassive black hole, and by supermassive we mean that this black hole has a mass of about a million to a billion times that of our own sun. Um, and there's one of these black holes in the centre of every galaxy. Uh, but for a long period of time they don't have a lot of activity around them, and so we don't see them as quasars. However, uh, when a lot of gas and dust is near the black hole it will start falling in and it will get very hot and when it gets hot it will emit a lot of radiation Uh, just like a a pan gets red hot this material uh, emits depending on what the temperature is Um, and if you're lucky and you can see this region which is very hot then you will see a lot of blue light a lot of UV, ultraviolet light, also infrared. However, on the outside, it's not so hot, so a bit further away from the black hole, this gas uh, will be relatively cool, and actually you can form dust. And this dust absorbs the optical and ultraviolet light. And so depending if you happen to have a clear view to the central, very very hot bit, or whether your line of sight is blocked by this dust, then actually your quasar, so the black hole that is growing by eating a lot of material, uh, will actually be obscured by the dust.
1: So is this dust in orbit around the black hole?
6: Um, It's a little bit further out than what we would call orbit, but uh, it might eventually make it. it, It's quite a long timescale for it to fall in, Um, but it's certainly in the outskirts of a black hole, in the central region of a galaxy.
1: And these quasars, can you see them all across the sky? Are they close by to us? Are they
6: a long way? Um, they seem to be rare in the present-day universe. So it's actually easier to find them in the past when the universe was smaller, so that's what we see as a redshift effect. Um, it's actually easier to find them a little bit further out. So typically we find them at large distances, which is actually equivalent to looking in the past.
1: So, would our own galaxy have gone through this stage, for
6: instance? Yes, we think so. Uh, Because the black hole in our galaxy is a little bit uh, smaller than some of these, so it's only a million solar masses compared (laughs) to a billion, it sounds small, um, then it wouldn't have been one of the most powerful quasars, one of the brightest ones, but I think it probably did undergo such a phase. So, at some stage, it probably was a very bright source.
1: And the most powerful quasars are the ones with the biggest supermassive black hole in the centre? Or do they go through stages, or can they evolve?
6: Yes, we think uh, you're right that uh, the most powerful quasars will have the biggest black holes in the centre, because the maximum power that you can develop is related to the black hole mass. Uh, However, if you don't have any material to fall in, then there's no material to get hot and to emit light, So you can have a very big black hole that is not very active, and then it's difficult to detect. So it's both the black hole mass, but also how much fuel is available. And all this fuel comes from, is it just when the universe formed? Yeah, so it's uh, fuel that is in the host galaxy. So when the galaxy was dustier, or more gaseous, so in an early phase, basically this gas and dust is also the fuel for star formation. So when the galaxy was forming and had more fuel for star formation, more gas, more dust. Then also it would have had probably more fuel for the black hole to eat. So they might go hand in hand.
1: So but it's an exciting time now for this, with the newer telescopes of ALMA being
6: absolutely, commissioned. So
1: absolutely. how will ALMA revolutionise your research?
6: Or well, ALMA is very good at studying dust and gas, what we just explained. Um, The dust that is not very hot emits at the wavelengths that ALMA can, can study. And the gas uh, that forms new stars is, or a fraction of it, is in a molecular phase. So it's cold enough that molecules have formed. And those molecules you can study again with ALMA. So this telescope is ideal for studying both the dust and the gas in early galaxies and at high redshift, so when the universe was younger. So it's a fantastic instrument.
1: So you hopefully get some time on there. and hopefully
6: get some observations with it.
1: And study these cold dust disks around quasars.
6: Exactly, yeah, and their host galaxies as well. And their we host galaxies. Study, yes. And what can you infer from studying this cold dust? We can, for example, measure the temperature of this dust. We can estimate what the mass is, how much of it there is. So we can have an estimate of the total mass available for star formation, for feeding the the black hole, both from the dust and the gas. And if you have good enough data, and I think this is where... Uh, in the distant universe, we need things like ALMA. Currently, it's, it's a bit difficult to do this. You can infer different phases. So that means you might be able to spot a region of hot gas as well as colder gas. And a, uh, they might have different uh, masses and they might occupy different regions of the galaxy. And with good enough data, you can start seeing this. So you can start kind of peeling the layers of the, of the onion. If you want, you can start seeing how the galaxy and the black hole work.
1: And previous to this, you couldn't see beyond that first layer of dust?
6: Um, Previously, except in very rare cases, you normally just see the average. Uh, So you can't tell the different phases. You just see a typical value for the host galaxy, a typical value for the quasar. But actually, this typical value is really a mixture of things. Um, If you looked at the Earth from very far away, it might just look blue. Or if you look at a continent from far away, it might look brown or green. And until you look a bit more closer, you might not start seeing that there are oceans, that there are forests and there are mountains. Uh, So so this lets you
1: you see a whole detailed picture of all the different things going on around these quasars.
6: Yes, absolutely. Uh,
1: And it should be very, very exciting stuff, all the things you can determine. How does a quasar switch on if there's all this dust around in the initial galaxy to start off with?
6: That's a good question. Um, how the first quasars switched on is a, is a very interesting uh, problem. We think the physics is similar, so if there's gas and there's a big black hole, then then the gas will start falling in and getting hot. But a very good question is, how early can we see them? And surprisingly, we see them extremely early, when the universe was only maybe 800 million years old. Now, that sounds pretty old, I like mean, <laughs> standard, but You have to remember, you have to grow this thing to be a million or even a billion times the mass of our own sun. And so to have that so early in the universe is is a very intriguing uh, observation. So why or how did they grow so quickly, so early?
1: Because all this matter comes from stars, and I guess the end of a stellar lifetime, like the dust, for instance, comes from that. Well, that's a good question.
6: We don't actually know how these supermass black holes form originally. And maybe they form from, from a star, like you said, a, a dead star, in which case the, the seed of the black hole should be relatively small, only 10 or 100 times the mass of our sun. Remember, this thing has to grow up to a million or a billion times. Um, it does grow exponentially, but it still needs some time to grow. So why or how these things are formed so early is, is an important question that hasn't been answered yet.
1: Are there any leading ideas in this field?
6: I think the observations are at a point where you can just about get away with forming these from a stellar mass black hole, because we've observed them at when the universe was about eight hundred million years old. That's just about enough time to uh, to form them from a relatively small seed, like from a star. But if we find them at slightly early epochs, then that will be very difficult to explain, because there will just won't be enough time for them to grow. So. I think right now you can't rule out either camp from the observations. I think uh, maybe soon we, we will have to rule out some of them if we find some some very high redshift quasars.
1: And so in the local universe, so coming a lot closer, all these supermassive black holes have eaten up all their fuel and then stopped being quasars, so this is why I have to look so far back in time when they've got a lot of stuff surrounding them.
6: We think so, yes. We think that's... Uh, that's probably the explanation why there are fewer of them in the present day universe. The, in, in, in the local universe there are a lot of big black holes, but they don't seem to be eating. So yes, the simplest explanation is that they they run out of gas. In fact, very often their host galaxies don't have very much gas. So that again agrees with that simple picture.
1: Thank you very much for joining us on the Jobcast. It's Thank been you brilliant. Very much for your interview. And I hope Alma opens a new window <laughs> up for you.
6: Let's hope so. Thank you very much.
1: Hello, I'm with Dr Alistair Edge from the University of Durham, who works on clusters of galaxies from an X-ray point of view and is now working his way across the electromagnetic spectrum. So hello Alistair, thank you for joining us today, and would you like to tell us a bit about your
7: research? Yes, my research is about uh, clusters of galaxies, which are very large uh, assemblages of galaxies and matter in between. They have very large masses, they affect the light that passes through them through gravitational lensing, but my particular interest is the gas that's in between the galaxies that's held through gravitation within those uh, huge systems. And I'm interested in the gas in between these galaxies, which is uh, emitting X rays. And as it emits X rays, it cools down. And over the last 30 or 40 years, where we've understood X ray emission, uh, we believe that a lot of that gas all cools down and uh, forms cold molecular gas around the galaxy, Uh, and early observations indicated that there will be lots of this gas and it appears to be much less of it through some mechanism related to the heating of that gas. And what we're beginning to to realise is a certain amount of gas cools, falls into the galaxy, falls into a supermassive black hole, and then the energy released as it falls into the supermassive black hole emits radio jets, big radio galaxies, which heat up the gas and prevent any more gas cooling. This process called AGN feedback has been very popular in the last five or six years, people explaining many different aspects of uh, galaxy evolution through this process. And what I've been studying is this AGN feedback within clusters, a relatively specialized area, but the process in that seems to apply to other smaller galaxies and galaxies at much higher redshift when the initial Uh, period of galaxy formation was at its most active. Uh, This cooling of gas, creation of stars and falling onto a central supermassive black hole seems to have been much more uh, frequent and common Uh, and then the lessons we're learning from galaxies nearby in the cores of clusters can be applied to the high redshift.
1: So how does the gas end up between the galaxies to start off with?
7: Good question. The hot gas that we're seeing seems to have, uh, have been uh, gas that falls in and doesn't instantly go into individual galaxies. It, it It's the, ga- the gas and um, baryonic material, the stuff that, that we are made out of, uh, falls into the uh, gravitational potential of all the dark matter of the, the cluster and misses the galaxies, gets heated up, and sits just in a gravitational equilibrium with uh, the other gas around it and it becomes dense and hot, uh, and the amount of uh, the effective temperature that we see of the, the gas, which is tens of millions of degrees, uh, is uh, representative of the huge amount of mass that we see within the cluster itself, and we can actually determine a lot about the dark matter from the gas and the properties of the gas, density, and uh, temperature of that gas, which you can measure directly from the x-rays. You can also infer the gravitational mass of all of the material within the cluster.
1: So within the cluster, is there just one super super supermassive
7: black hole, or is there several? There are many supermassive black holes in each individual galaxy, but size of supermassive black hole goes with size of galaxy, and the big galaxies in the middle of clusters are the biggest of the big. Uh, They have the biggest supermassive black holes. Uh, there, There appears to be a very clear connection between the black hole and the size of the galaxy, and the galaxies in the middle of clusters are the biggest galaxies that we know and also the most potentially most powerful in radio galaxy terms
1: so the gas falls into the supermassive black hole from the clusters yep. this eventually depletes the gas supply and then it turns to the switch off of the agn
7: yes you you will have a cycle in which gas cools falls into the middle uh, some of that is, it releases lots of energy which then radiates and, and uh, energetically sends shock waves out into the uh, intercluster medium. And uh, you look in the x-rays, you can see what look like ripples, which are effectively very low sound waves, but you know, 20 octaves below what we could possibly hear, uh, radiate out and push energy into the intercluster medium and heat it up. So there's a, a cycle of gas cools, falls in, uh, that effect of that cooling gas prevents more... Uh, gas cooling. So you have a sort of steady state of uh, outbursts of these massive black holes, material coming in, it, it uh, goes through an outburst, gas flow stops, it goes quiescent and then comes back again.
1: And you can tell all this from the x-ray
8: observations? You can, from, you can tell
7: it from the x-ray observations, the radio observations, and looking at a large number of these systems, uh, the number that are going through these active outbursts is relatively small. But looking at, say, a thousand clusters, you can say something about the lifetime of these uh, events going off by looking at a whole set of clusters and, and seeing them at different stages of these outbursts.
0: Sorry, can I just come in there? The AGN is the active galactic nucleus, is Yes, the actual, beg my pardon,
7: I was falling into jargon. <laughs> the actual central um, part where all the activity is happening. Yes, so when a supermassive black hole undergoes an, a, a period of gas falling in and lots of energy coming out, it's observationally recognised as an active galactic nucleus, or an AGN, to astronomers.
0: And how do you infer that there's a black hole there? Is it just that that, those sort of temperatures and that amount of activity, is the only thing that can really explain it, or is there any other evidence?
7: There are are a number of uh, elements to the evidence, one of which is that these things vary on timescales of the order of a year, and that requires something quite big, uh, a massive but relatively small To be generating that energy so it couldn't be stars if it varies on time scales of of the order of years. Uh, The other thing is that we see massive very energetic relativistic jets in these systems which again it would be very difficult to generate from stars but are relatively straightforward to explain with supermassive black holes.
1: As you look at just clusters of galaxies can you see gas between clusters of clusters of galaxies, or is that not something
7: it, it, that can it, be you, observed? Um, it is something you can observe. You can observe it indirectly, in that you can look at a background quasar or an object which is producing light in the, in the far distance and seeing gas uh, within and uh, elements between clusters of galaxies that absorbs a certain frequency of light, uh, and you see. A, a small dip at a given wavelength related to to that gas, you can also hope in future although not yet to look at observations in the ultraviolet and extreme ultraviolet for the the much cooler, less dense gas in between galaxy clusters held within these filaments that are believed to to uh, connect all of the big objects we see in the universe and and if uh, you look at simulations they predict a very filamentary, stringy nature of the universe, and gas will be held within those at different temperatures. And those are you know, a very active area of uh, astronomical research.
1: So going back to the clusters of galaxies that you observed in the X-rays, you've seen so, an hourglass-type structure in the X-ray emission. Could yes. you explain that a bit more, please?
7: So uh, the one object I showed in the talk that I gave this afternoon was uh, Hydra A, powerful radio galaxy in the Hydra uh, constellation, it has very powerful radio source which has two jets and lobes coming out and that uh, non-thermal radio plasma gets ejected very rapidly into this hot uh, intracluster medium and it pushes it away through pressure and you end up with less X-ray emission coming from those regions where there's strong radio uh, emission and you end up with things which look very symmetric and uh as I described it, an hourglass structure of of the intracluster medium gas being pushed away, uh, and you see depressions and and sometimes you can see a shell of hot plasma um, and gas that's been pushed out as this bubble of radio plasma expands, uh, and you end up with more dense material immediately around it and a lot less material emitting x-rays inside so you can end up with what appears to be a bright surface to this radio bubble.
0: And as you've been giving a talk here today at a meeting about ALMA, which is the Atacama Large Millimeter
7: Array, how will you be able to use that instrument in your research? So ALMA is particularly exciting for me because it actually gives us an opportunity to look at cold gas that we've seen only in glimpses and only at very uh, low uh, resolution. We have only been able to look and say there is a certain amount of cold molecular gas in that galaxy, but where it is within that galaxy I haven't been able to to determine because we haven't been able to to resolve different bits of the gas within a galaxy, and ALMA allows us to do that for the first time. Uh, And that's important because as the gas cools and falls into the galaxy it begins to uh, create a, a disk of material which rotates, and you see emission on one side coming towards us and on the other side going away from us, uh, and that's what the object I was proposing that uh, we observe early on in, in, in the uh, initial stages of ALMOR operations, an object which has a very clear uh, gas disk where one side is moving towards the other away, and that would give us a very clear result. Very early on uh, which would uh, encourage everyone to, to make the most of this uh, large investment of, of money and resources in, in this fantastic instrument so for the first time
0: you'll be able to look at the gas in a in a in a, in a lower wavelength is that how you're able to see more of it um,
7: what you we were able to do is uh, to use the telescopes separated and use this technique called interferometry previously we only used one telescope and looked at an object you, using in interferometry, you have uh, many telescopes, each of which are looking at it, and through the the magic of computing, you can compare those signals and actually create a telescope which is very much bigger and is, as large as the separation of the telescopes, not the size of the telescopes. And I uh, uh, have used this technique many times in, in the past, but it never ceases to amaze me that uh, you can actually uh, use these telescopes to create images a much more, uh, higher resolution, m- more ability to see individual features than you would expect from something of the size of, say, 12 metres.
1: So and it's a very exciting time coming up then.
7: It is a very exciting time. Sure. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Alistair, for joining us, and being on the Jodcast to being interviewed and telling us about your wonderful X-ray astronomy. Thank you. Thanks for that, Libby and Mark. At this meeting, I got very interview happy and was kidnapping a lot of people to do Jogcast interviews. So there's a few more of these going on in later Jogcasts.
3: Kidnapping makes it sound like we take them against their will. I would like to reassure everyone. (laughs) In
2: most cases, they're willing.
3: I'd like to reassure everyone that people do agree to do Jogcasts. We don't hold them at
1: gunpoint or anything to get an interview. Okay, borrowed for a few minutes of their time. Okay. And now it's time for the odds and ends section of the show, a round of all the bits and bobs that have occurred since the last recording.
4: First up, we've got news of a possible ninth planet within the solar system for anyone who's a little disappointed that Pluto got kicked out of it five years ago.
3: I sense a little bit of bitterness there.
4: I'm not bitter at all. It it should still be
3: a planet. No, it shouldn't. No, (laughs) it it shouldn't. No, it shouldn't.
2: I think it should just because it was a planet before and because I, I learned it like that. But what about the bigger planets? Well, not planets, but bigger dwarf planets in
1: the solar system. Then they would have to be planets too, and then we'd. No, just no, just just Pluto. But what about Eris? Eris I don't care
5: about sad. Eris.
2: Eris can get sad. I don't care.
4: Luckily, this planet would not have any of those issues, given it's estimated to be about four times the mass of Jupiter. Whoa! That's yes. a big
1: planet to not notice before.
4: Yes. the downside of it is, the reason we've not seen it before, is that it's about 375 times further out than Pluto. So it's on the very edge of the outer Oort cloud.
2: So when you say we haven't seen it before, we've seen it?
4: We've not seen it, no. That is the oh. other thing. Boop. There is speculation at the moment, rumour, if you will, that um, the NASA Space Telescope, WISE, may have some evidence of its existence within its data, but we won't get that data till April.
2: What's WISE? WISE
1: is an infrared telescope which is surveying the entire sky. It was launched last year and has been taking data since then. And the first data release was in April. So, yay,
3: exciting times for infrared astronomers. A ninth planet in the very, very outer... I mean, you're talking so far away that it's almost not in the solar system and there's only a couple of guys who might think that this is there.
4: Yes, there's only two people who think it's there at the moment. But their theory is they think it will be about four or five times hotter than Pluto, so it should stand out relative to its surroundings.
3: And it will be that hot because of it being so big? Because it's so far away from the sun that it's not that hot because, it's, because no, of the it, sun's heat?
4: it's because it's still not cooled down yet after having formed, is right. their theory. Again, this is all theory, speculation...
3: It's been blown out of proportion a bit by the media, I think. It's quite a nice story for newspapers and things to pick up. Yes,
4: I wouldn't start rewriting the textbooks yet on the number of planets, unless you're going to add Pluto back in, of course. (laughs) Have they named it yet? They have. They've named it Tyche, which is the good sister of a possible binary star to the sun.
1: Oh, let's not get into that. Yes,
4: it's (laughs) quite convoluted.
1: Yes, And the name will probably change anyway, if it really is there. The solar activity of our Sun has been ramping up in the past few years to reach a solar maximum in 2013 and on Valentine's Day in February there was a massive solar flare which is the largest solar flare in four years. Now this solar flare is, and coronal mass ejections as well have got a lot of people very excited because they thought they'd be able to see the aurora in the sky. This has led to lots of people trying to go out and see it like I did last time, I don't know if anyone can remember that. You're
3: driving into the middle of nowhere Yes, and not seeing it. Yeah, I remember that.
1: But this time I checked the weather reports and knew there was no chance. But I'm going to be on the watch for any more aurora and hopefully with the sun kicking up and being more volatile in the next few years, hopefully I will be able to see the aurora at some point.
3: And if you're in the UK and you want an easy way to know when it might be possible to see the aurora... Some space scientists at Lancaster University have set up a Twitter account, which is aurora Watch UK, spelt A-U-R-O-R-A-W-A-T-C-H-U-K. You can follow them and they'll tweet at you if there's anything interesting likely to happen. If you're not on Twitter, they've also got a website, which is aurorawatch.lancs.ac.uk. So hopefully we'll be able to see the aurora in the UK, which would be really, really cool.
1: We'll link those on our show notes.
3: Yes, and we probably should also get an interview with someone about all of this, because it's
2: kind of cool. It's very cool. Yeah. In the last show, we mentioned that uh, the uh, probe Stardust was going to do a flyby of uh, the comet Temple 1. And it happened around Valentine's Day, where there was the flyby of the comet with a a closest approach of uh, 178 kilometers. So pretty close by. And the old mission was apparently really successful. The uh, principal investigator was quoted saying it was a thousand percent successful.
3: How S- do you have a thousand percent success? By
2: having a lot of a lot of a lot of a lot of success. okay basically, all their objectives were fulfilled. They wanted to um, look at the changes on the comet. It flew around the sun between the time uh, it was first observed with um, deep impact five and a half years ago and observed now with Stardust. So they could look at uh, the differences between the two. So, what kind happening.
3: of changes would you see?
2: Well, you would see a lot of erosion probably because the comet went closer to the sun, and so it hit up, and then you'll have you know some evaporation and sublimation and changes in the way the surface look. They saw quite a lot of changes like that, so it it can give you an idea of the processes what happens when it goes closer to the sun. They also wanted to look at uh, the crater, like probe that they sent and impacted the comet. What happened is that once it impacted the comet, there was a lot of dust. So Deep Impact could not actually see the crater. But now we can because the dust is gone. And they were pretty happy because they, they saw the crater being exactly the size that they predicted. It looks the way they predicted. And um, they were, I think, a little bit surprised though because it turns out that The crater was partially buried, which means that the nucleus of the comet is weak and fragile, giving you an idea of what the nucleus is made of. So
3: maybe it's more like sand than rock?
2: Probably, yes. Yes, that's the idea. They also went through the particles around the comet and uh, gathered those particles and they're analyzing it right now and we'll have more information in April.
1: So there's some pretty cool pictures of this on the web page, just with the satellite coming in to approach the comet and data in real time. Um, It was pretty exciting watching that coming in as it was happening. Oh yeah, totally. This stuff is so cool. I love science. (laughs) It's brilliant. (laughs) Um, We'll link to some of those images in the show notes. And now, from stardust to stars, Ian Morrison tells us what you can see in the northern sky in March.
9: The night sky for March 2011. Well, we've still got quite long night times, which is good for astronomers. As night falls, Orion and the lovely constellations like Taurus, the bull, are nearby, but they're beginning to set towards the west. And as the night moves on, perhaps we should now move our eyes towards the constellations that we haven't been able to see so well for a while. Perhaps first of those is the constellation of Gemini, the heavenly twins, which is up to the left of Orion and that will be seen in the southwest sort of in the the mid evening its two brightest stars are castor and pollux if you've got binoculars and on a dark night if you follow down to the feet of the uppermost twin that has castor at its head and look a little bit to the right-hand side you might spot the rather lovely open cluster called M35 as you move across from gemini towards the east, there's a fairly empty part of the sky. But in the centre there is the constellation of Cancer, the crab. And again with binoculars, you can see a rather lovely wide open cluster. It's called M44, or the pricepi, the beehive cluster, several names for it. And that's very close to the not particularly bright star at the heart of the constellation of Cancer. And as you keep going, you then come to the sickle of Leo the lion. And that's one of the few constellations, in my view, actually looks like what it says it is. It's rather like the lions in Trafalgar Square on their haunches. Regulus is the brightest star, Alpha Leonis. And that's sort of the, the four paws, if you like, or at least the knees of the, of the lion, the front knees. The sickle makes up his head and then you can actually see the body of the lion going back to a star called Denebola, which basically forms his tail. That's quite a nice region where, with a small telescope, you can actually pick up some galaxies. If you actually start at Regulus and you basically move horizontally when it's in the south, you may well be able to spot a couple of uh, nice galaxies, M95, M96, and further over... M65 and M66, so they're both nice things to see and relatively easy to find. Over to the lower left of Leo in the evening is rising the constellation of Virgo. Again, it doesn't have many bright stars, Spica, Alpha Virginis, is the brightest. But between Leo and Virgo and below a little constellation called Coma Berenices is an area of the sky They call the realm of the galaxies. And this is looking towards what we call the Virgo cluster, cluster of well over a thousand galaxies. And in there, there are quite a number of galaxies in the so-called Messier catalogue, which means on a good dark night with a transparent sky, you could see them with a relatively small telescope. I think uh, Messier only had a telescope about three and a half to four inches aperture. So that's a lovely region to look, but you've got to have a dark, transparent sky to see them. Now, high overhead, perhaps seen as its best all year, we have the constellation of Ursa Major, the great bear, and within that, of course, we have the asterism, I suppose, that we call the plough, or the Americans call the Big Dipper, which I always used to think was one of these sort of um, fairground rides, but in fact, it's actually the ladle that farmers' wives used to ladle out the broth at lunchtime for the farm hands. The two right-hand stars of the plough, Merrick at the bottom and Dubhe at the top, they point across to Polaris, the pole star, the northern star. A nice thing to look at with binoculars is the central star of the three that make up the handle of the plough, called Alcor and Mizar, and in fact you'll easily see there's a double there with binoculars, and possibly even just with your eyes if you've got very good eyesight with a small telescope it's rather nice because the brighter of them is seen to be a double itself so you've got three stars visible and then there's actually a rather fainter reddish star that sort of makes an open triangle with them so there's a lot to see in the sky in the next few weeks and we still have a good number of hours to see them with so let's have a look at the planets that we can see this month the first one I think to mention is Jupiter it's now coming to the end of its current apparition. That's the period of time when we see it well. But you can still see it low in the west after sunset at the beginning of the month. And I've got that coming up in a highlight later on. But to be honest, by the end of the month, it'll have been swallowed up in the sunset glare. Still got a magnitude of minus 2.1, so it's pretty bright. And its angular size doesn't vary an awful lot. It's now about 33 and arc seconds. So... Given a small telescope, you should easily see the moons of Jupiter weaving their way around it and some of the markings on the surface. But of course, when it's low down, the atmosphere will tend to degrade the image somewhat. There's a thin, waxing crescent moon passing very close to Jupiter on the 6th of the month. I'll come back to that briefly. Well, now Saturn is beginning to come to the best part of its current apparition. It's now becoming an evening object rises at about 2100 hours UT at the beginning of March and about 2000 UT by the end. It's due south and highest in the sky at about 3 o'clock at the beginning of the month and by 1 o'clock BST, remembering the clock's changed before the very end of the month by its end. So we're beginning to have a good look at Saturn. It starts March with a magnitude of plus 0.5. It's a bit brighter than it was a year or so ago because the rings are now opening out They went out to about 10 degrees to edge on, but just because of the way the Earth moves around the sun as well, they've actually dropped back a bit, and they're currently, this month, at about 9 degrees edge on. The rings span an angular size of about 42 arc seconds, and so there's just a chance now that because they've opened out, you can actually see what's called Cassini's division, which is a rather dark ring you see separating two of the bands of the rings. Another highlight of saturn to come up later on mercury i'll come to that as a highlight because it's one of its good apparitions this month mars well it's lying behind the sun so that won't be visible and finally venus well it remains a pre-dawn object shining at about minus 4.1 and that's pretty bright it rises at about 5:30 a.m an hour before sunrise so you've still got a chance to see it but although its angular separation from the sun is still quite large, because the ecliptic is coming at a lower angle to the horizon than it was some months ago, is actually not that high in the sky. So you've got to have a good eastern horizon to see it. As it's moving towards the far side of the sun, its angular size is getting less. It starts a month at 15.4 arcseconds, drops to 13.7. But at the same time, the amount of the surface that we see illuminated by the Sun is increasing. And those two effects tend to cancel out, so the brightness basically stays pretty constant. But by the end of the month, that's going to be lost in the Sun's glare as well. So next month, we certainly shan't see Jupiter and we won't see Venus either. Okay, well finally, let's just have a look at some of the highlights of this month. Well, I left out Mercury because it really is a highlight. It's at its best this spring. We normally see Mercury well twice a year, once in the spring and once in the autumn. In the springtime, we see it in the evening best, and that's because the ecliptic in March basically is at a fairly steep angle to the horizon, so even though Mercury isn't all that far away from the sun in angle, it's still fairly high up in the sky. It might just be visible around the 5th of March with a magnitude of minus 1.4, but it would need a very good low western horizon to see it, and it's pretty well due west at that time. But of course, if you're looking with binoculars, wait until the sun has set. You don't want to look anywhere close to the sun with any form of visual aid. That evening on the 5th is when there'll be a very, very thin crescent moon, just five degrees to its right. If you can spot that, you're doing jolly well. The day later, the moon might be easier to see. As the month progresses, it increases its angular separation from the Sun, but also, in fact, it gets somewhat less bright. Its so-called greatest eastern elongation, and that's when its angle is furthest from the Sun, is on the 23rd of March. But by then, its brightness will have dropped to magnitude plus 0.4, but it will be relatively high in the sky. On the 23rd of the month, you might just spot Jupiter directly below just above the horizon, if you've got a very good low western horizon. It might be the last time you have a chance to see Jupiter before it appears again in the morning sky. I've mentioned March the 6th, sunset. You have Jupiter and a thin crescent moon lying above Mercury. That Mercury will still be very low. You may not spot that, but it would be very nice to see Jupiter and the moon not too far apart. Mercury will be nine degrees below the moon, almost exactly below due west. As a little diagram in the night sky page, just put that into Google, will show you. And on March the 15th, again Mercury, we have a very nice close encounter of Jupiter and Mercury. And they'll be just about two degrees apart. So very easy to spot the pair of them. Binoculars will easily show them in the same field of view, as will a relatively low power telescope. That might be nice to see. Now, occasionally, I talk about seeing the moon occult a star, what we call a lunar occultation. There was one last month in the early morning. But this month, there's a slightly brighter star being occulted, and also it's in the evening, at about seven minutes past nine, on the evening of the 13th of March. This time, it's the third magnitude star, so quite bright, called Eta Geminorum, and that will be occulted by the leading and, hence dark, limb of the moon. So it'd be rather nice to look at that and see it disappear in the twinkling of an eye. You have to try and judge when that's going to happen by imagining the full circle of the Moon. So at the time, just keep your eyes open. It will be about 2107 in the mid-UK, but it does vary a bit depending where you are. So you can't be too precise about that. It's going to reappear equally quickly, but this time from a bright limb, about an hour later at 22. That might be worth looking for if it's a clear night. I tried to include one or two things that you can see with a small telescope in the hope of encouraging you to buy one, and I hope many of you have. Saturn's moons are nice to see, and you have really to try when the moon is not really around, because although you can generally see Titan, the brightest, at about magnitude 8, given a dark, transparent sky, you should easily pick up three others, Dione, rear and tethers. I chose the first and second of March to have a look because there's no moon essentially and they're all quite tightly clustered close to Saturn. So you can use quite a high power magnification, which actually helps see the fainter objects and see Titan over to the right and the other three moons closer in. But of course, any time when there's no real moon you have a chance to see it. The program called Stellarium just put that into Google, will show you every night where those satellites will be seen relative to Saturn. Just home in on Saturn and zoom right in, and you see all the satellites you can pick up. So that's something nice to see, and I've certainly photographed them on occasions and seen them. And finally, on the Moon, there's a very nice feature that you can see just after first quarter, or just before third quarter, And that's about March the 13th and March the 25th. It's called the straight wall. To be honest, it's not really a wall. It's a scarp, but it looks like a fairly straight line. And in one case, you see it as a dark shadow. And in the other case, you see it as lit up as a bright line against the maria in which it's in. In fact, Sir Patrick Moore said, neither is it a wall, nor is it straight It's basically a gentle scarp, but it's one of the nice features to spot with a small telescope on the moon's surface. So good hunting for March.
1: Thanks for that, Ian. And here's John Field to tell us what you can see in the southern sky this month.
8: Kia ora and welcome to the Carter Observatory's March night sky. March sees our summer constellations Taurus, Orion, and Gemini starting towards the western sky a little more each evening. Our nights are quickly becoming longer and this means more opportunity for stargazing. In the west, the Pleiades Matariki set earlier each evening and will soon be lost in the twilight. They will return in our morning sky, however, at the time of our winter solstice. The Pleiades form the prow of a great canoe in the night sky that was used by Tamareriti to sail across the heavens, placing the the stars into the sky. One version of this canoe uses the Pleiades to mark the prow, and in the V-shape of the Hyades cluster in Taurus to form the sail, Orion's belt and sword form the stern and carved sternpost of the canoe. The V-shaped head of Taurus consists of a distant cluster of stars, the half-sister of the Pleiades forming a distinct V along with a much closer and brighter star, Aldebaran, forming one of the bull's eyes. The name Aldebaran originates from the Arabic word, the follower, as this star follows the Pleiades across the sky. Aldebaran has a distinct orange hue, and this is a K5-type star that is 65 light-years away from us and 150 times brighter than our star, the Sun. This star has used up all its hydrogen fuel at its core and is fusing hydrogen in a shell around it. The star's radius has increased to 44 times that of our sun, and with a much larger surface area, its surface temperature has dropped to around 4,000 degrees. The spectral type of a star is based on its spectral lines and temperatures. Today they fall into the following sequence, O, B, A, F, G, K, and M, running from hottest to coolest. This can be remembered by the term, O be a fine girl or guy, kiss me, Sirius is the brightest star in our night sky, and it is an A-type star. Our star the sun, is a G-type. Proxima in Troy, the closest star to our solar system, is a faint M-type red dwarf. Returning to Aldebaran, this star is slightly variable, but the change in brightness is imperceptible to the human eye. Aldebaran is one of the few very bright stars that can be occulted or hidden by the moon. One of these events was observed from Athens in 1509. And During his tenure in the 1700s, Astronomer Royal Edmund Halley realized that Aldebaran could not have been in its current position for this to have happened. This means that Aldebaran must have moved over the intervening 1200 years by about one quarter of the diameter of the moon. Halley then went on to discover that a number of other stars had also moved in their positions since historical times. These shifting of the star positions is due to all the stars, including our star, the Sun, moving around the galaxy in their own orbit. The nearby stars show the greatest amount of movement. Every 50 years, updated star atlas are released to account for this movement. From our solar system, we will see over many thousand years as stars shift. The constellations we see today will look different in 100,000 or a million years' time. The stars in the Hyades cluster are about 150 light years away from us and consist of at least 130 stars brighter than night for magnitude. There are a number of double and multiple stars in this cluster. It has used up or lost the interstellar material from which it formed and now it travels as a loose open cluster and is estimated to be about 700 million years old. Almost due north is the zodiac constellation of Cancer the Crab which appears as four stars with a beehive cluster in the centre. Rising up in the eastern sky is the planet Saturn appearing as a bright yellow star in the constellation of Virgo. Through a telescope the rings will appear as a thin disk around the planet. The rings are almost edge on at this time. In the southern sky, we see the Cross and Akhenar opposite each other and about halfway up our southern sky. The halfway point between the two marks the south celestial pole. A further way back from Akhenar, we find the two Magellanic Clouds, two dwarf galaxies orbiting the Milky Way. There are 14 known dwarf galaxies orbiting the Milky Way. It is thought that these galaxies are formed during the birth of their parent galaxy or following interaction with other large galaxies. The tidal forces in these interactions stimulate the collapse of material in the halo of a galaxy, and this leads to the dwarf galaxies forming. One of these is located in the constellation of Canis Major, and is known as the Canis Major Dwarf Galaxy, and is about 25,000 light years away from our solar system. This dwarf galaxy is being pulled apart by the gravitational pull of our own galaxy. Recent studies of the globular clusters M79 NGC 1851 and NGC 2808 implies that they may have been stolen from this dwarf galaxy. Another disrupted dwarf galaxy was recently discovered by a team led by New Zealand astronomer Mary Williams. This galaxy is in the direction of the constellation of Aquarius. The region with the greatest number of globular clusters is the Scorpius Sagittarius region, which is rising after midnight. For those up in the early morning, the planet Venus will rise in the east around 4 a.m. and on the 1st of March, the crescent moon will be close by to Venus. The other planets Mercury, Mars and Jupiter are too close to the sun to be observed. Thank you very much for listening to our Jodcast and Carter Observatory here in Wellington, New Zealand.
1: Thanks for that, John. So now it comes time to the feedback section of the show to round up all the wonderful, well, not post, because we haven't got any when we really like post.
3: We do really like post, and the address is on the website. If you do want to send us post, please do, because it makes us unbelievably happy.
4: Letters are more exciting than emails.
3: They are. And postcards the- are the best.
4: There's more effort We feel more loved
1: (laughs) Do you think we're
2: hinting At something here?
3: Send us postcards I'm going to India soon So I'll send us a postcard But that's
2: a bit sad Writing it to myself You need to find Like a cool place To take a picture of you With your broadcast shirt Yes Uh, In emails We have Kevin from Doncaster Who's a new listener Who was inspired By the BBC Stargazing Live And went to buy A telescope Was really excited Except that uh, It's been very cloudy So he's a bit sad So we hope for him That the weather clears up
3: well, we hope for all of us that the weather clears up. I'd quite like to see the moon and the stars. And Well, we're in Manchester, so light pollution means we don't really see anything.
4: That's an excuse for a trip to France, if ever I heard one. <laughs> Countryside of France. Jodcast abroad. We should do it. Oh, no. Jodcast on tour.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, that's so tempting. And Continuing.
4: We've had a lot of activity on the forums as well, especially in regards to book recommendations and bad movie science, of which I'm sure there is an abundance. That forum thread will probably last a long time. Yeah.
3: Over on Twitter, thank you to everyone who retweeted the February Extra show, everyone who gave us a follow Friday, and everyone who's been recommending us to friends. We really appreciate it. It's just there's so many of you this time that we thought we'd better not read out a list of names. Also, Steve P. Knight tweeted at us with a still from the movie The Dish where they played cricket in the Parks Telescope and wanted to know if we've ever done this or were thinking of doing it. Um Stuart has, in fact, played cricket in the Lovell Telescope and tweeted back a photo of him doing so. I'm just a bit jealous that I missed out on that. Not that I really play cricket, but it would have been so cool. Graham Babs listens to the jog cast in the car and says, that way at least I'm comfy while it all whistles over my head.
1: Not sure if that's positive. I'm going to take that as positive. Thanks to everyone on the Facebook group and all the feedback from there. From Antti Carver, who says we're loving the work on the Jogcast. Yes. And would like to see a video cast? Well, you're in luck because we've made two video episodes that are in the pipeline. One is uh, the fabled tour of all the E-Merlin telescopes, which we did a while back, finally getting out onto the video. And the other one is on radio telescopes with our very own Tim O'Brien.
3: So those should be on the website and on YouTube very soon. The Radio Astronomy one is 99.99999% done. We just have to change a couple of things before it goes out.
1: If you want to get in touch, you can do so via the
2: website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net.
4: On Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook.
2: On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast.
1: And that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you to Alistair Edge and Alejo Martinez-Sansiri for being interviewed.
2: The editors were Mark Perver, Melanie Chandre, Jen Gupta, and Kat McGuire.
4: And the producer was Libby Jones.
2: Until next time,
4: Jod, Jod on. on.
2: Bye.
9: Bye.
0: This is Brian Cox, and thank you for listening to the Jodcast. And my catchphrase is... That's why I love physics. I don't know why I did it in a northern comedian's accent, but that's what catchphrases are supposed to
7: be. That's
0: why I love physics.
5: (laughs) Thank you.
7: Wrap up one.